The idea of a house of horror might seem like something more suited to a Halloween party or the setting of a scary film. However, to those familiar with true crime, there is a much more serious and sinister meaning behind the term. While the culprits of heinous crimes may be put behind bars, the scenes at which they occurred remain. A stark reminder set in brick and mortar of the crimes committed there. In today's episode, we'll be exploring two houses of horror. The Pettit Family Before becoming a grisly crime scene in 2007, the home of the Pettit family in Cheshire, Connecticut was a pristine and picturesque suburban one, complete with a well-manicured lawn. Situated in a quiet, family-friendly neighborhood, it was the last place that anyone expected to turn into the site of one of the state's most horrific crimes. By all accounts, the Pettit family were a very ordinary one, Dr. William Pettit, 50, was an endocrinologist in Plainville and the medical director of Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Connecticut Central Hospital. He married his wife, Jennifer Hawke Pettit, in 1985. The 48-year-old was a nurse and a co-director of the health center at Cheshire Academy, a private boarding school. Together, the couple had two beautiful and intelligent children. Haley, 17, had recently graduated from Miss Porter's school where she had been part of several athletic teams, including cross country, basketball, and rowing. She was also a high role honor student, and she planned to attend Dartmouth College, following in the footsteps of her parents and studying medicine. Haley also led a walk MS team called Haley's Hope, which she used to raise over $55,000 for multiple sclerosis research after her mother was diagnosed with the disease. The couple's youngest child, Michaela, was 11 years old. She planned to take over the Walk MS team after Haley headed to university and intended on renaming it Michaela's Miracle. The youngster enjoyed cooking for her family, something she did often, and she also loved spending time working in the garden with her father. However, everything changed in the summer of 2007. On the evening of July 22nd, Jennifer and Michaela went to their local stop and shop grocery store to pick up the necessary ingredients for dinner that night. It was here that they picked up the attention of a 26-year-old man named Joshua Komisajewski, who decided to follow them home, noting that they had a nice car. He eventually also found that they lived in a nice home. During his trial in 2011, the prosecution claimed that Komisajewski was motivated by money and his interest in Michaela. According to Komisajewski and his partner in crime, 50-year-old Stephen Hayes, the original plan the pair hatched involved them simply breaking into the house, stealing money and valuables, and leaving the family bound but unharmed. However, that is not what happened. At around 3 a.m. on July 23rd, the pair broke into the home and found William asleep on the sofa in the sunroom. 
After finding a baseball bat leaning against the basement stairs, Komisajewski decided to use it and struck the sleeping doctor four to five times. While he bled from a head wound that was quickly making him woozy, the criminals bound William's wrists and ankles using plastic zip ties and rope. The doctor remembered hearing one say to the other, if he moves, put two bullets in him. From here, Haley, Michaela, and Jennifer were all bound to their beds, tied by the wrists and ankles in their respective rooms. Pillowcases were placed over each of their heads. Satisfied that everyone was restrained, Komisajewski and Hayes began ransacking the house, searching for money. Although William had previously told them there was no safe in the house, the pair continued to search, eventually finding bank statements that said the couple had about $40,000 in their accounts. Suddenly, a new plan was formed. The pair would wait until the banks opened, then force one of the family members to withdraw a large sum for them. They then moved William into the basement and tied him to a support beam. CCTV footage showed Hayes buying $10 worth of gasoline later that morning. He used two cans taken from the Petit family home to store it and then went back to the house, where he picked up Jennifer and forced her to withdraw $15,000 for himself and his accomplice. While at the bank, Jennifer quickly explained the situation to the teller, telling them that she and her family were being held hostage by men who wanted money. She reportedly said that they just wanted the cash and they were being nice. The bank manager then alerted the authorities and relayed the same information to them. The police discreetly made their way to the scene in unmarked cars, setting up a vehicle perimeter and assessing the situation without alerting the two men to their presence. Meanwhile, back at the Petit house, Komisajewski sexually assaulted 11-year-old Michaela. This would be discovered during her autopsy, and the 26-year-old admitted to it when he was confronted with the evidence. He also photographed the assault. He later said that he believed the young girl was 14 or 16. Forensic testing done on her clothing later showed that Komisajewski had tried to erase any forensic evidence by using bleach. After Hayes and Jennifer returned to the home, Hayes reportedly felt provoked by his accomplice into sexually assaulting the mother of two in the living room. William, barely conscious in the basement, heard the assault of his wife upstairs. He shouted up to her, don't worry, it's all gonna be over in a couple of minutes. Then, using a jolt of adrenaline, he broke free of his restraints and escaped out the basement exit, crawling his way to the house of a neighbor who didn't recognize him because he was so beaten and bloodied. Upon discovering that William was missing, Komisajewski alerted Hayes, who strangled Jennifer. The pair then poured gasoline on her body and throughout various parts of the house, including the bedrooms of Haley and Michaela. Their clothing and bodies were also doused with the substance. A fire was started and the two men fled in the Petit's car. Michaela and Haley succumbed to the smoke. Hayes and Komisajewski did not get very far. They were seen fleeing by the police and were caught just one block from the home. Both men confessed to the murders, but claimed the other was the driving force. Stephen Hayes was a well-known criminal who'd been arrested nearly 30 times and had spent almost his entire life in and out of jail. He was sent to a halfway house in 2006, which is where he met Joshua Komisajewski. 
Joshua was adopted by the son of a theatrical director after his own mother, who was only 16, gave him up. In the 90s, his sister accused him of sexually assaulting her. Komostajewski added that he had also been sexually abused by his foster brother when he was just 14. Komostajewski also spent most of his life in and out of jail, and once told authorities that he enjoyed the feeling of invading private homes and violating the security of the house's inhabitants. Both men were convicted of the murders, among other charges. They were each sentenced to death, but in 2015, due to the abolition of the death penalty in Connecticut, their sentences were commuted to life in prison. Not only was this crime truly horrific, but the part played by the police department has become controversial. Many have wondered why the authorities didn't act sooner when they were there on the scene. Perhaps they could have saved the children and Jennifer if they had. The police explained that they believed they were dealing with a hostage situation, and they didn't know how many perpetrators were in the house or how many weapons there were. It was also reported that higher-ups had instructed officers not to make contact with Hayes when he returned with Jennifer. They'd also been told not to phone the house or infiltrate the home. In recent years, Komasajewski, who is now 40, attempted to appeal his sentencing and get a new trial, but his appeal was denied this year by the Connecticut Supreme Court. William, the only survivor of the vicious attack, remarried in 2012 to a woman named Christine Palaf, who he met when he was volunteering with the Petit Family Foundation. A year later, the couple had their first child, a son named William Petit III. William no longer works as a doctor, instead devoting most of his time to the foundation, which aims to educate young people, support those with chronic illnesses, and protect those affected by violence. In the years since the tragedy, the Petit home has been torn down. It is now a lot containing a memorial garden for the family. The Bender Family This small cabin, located in the township of Osage in Labette County, Kansas, roughly seven miles from modern-day Cherryvale, doesn't look like it would ever have contained much more than an ordinary, hard-working, modest 19th-century family just trying to get by. But it is, in fact, the home of the Bender family, or as they were more commonly known, the Bloody Benders a family of serial killers whose crimes were so shocking that their story has now become a mix of truth and legend. Their grisly ways have also been documented on a plaque in the area, informing visitors and tourists of the township's dark history. In October of 1870, John Bender Sr. and John Bender Jr. arrived in Osage. They registered about 160 acres of land near the Great Osage Trail, and built a cabin, barn, coral, and well. The nearby trail was a popular route for travelers, as it was the only road going west. Then, in the autumn of 1871, two women arrived to join the Bender men. The first was Elvira, known as Ma Bender. The other was Kate, who was initially believed to have been the older couple's daughter and the brother of John Jr. The humble timber cabin consisted of one room, which was divided in two by the canvas cover of a wagon. There was also a trap door to a stone cellar, 
And upon the women's arrival, a small vegetable garden and a decent sized orchard were both set up nearby. The main area of the cabin was set up as a general goods store, where the family sold dry goods such as gunpowder, liquor, and tobacco. It was also partially an inn, where travelers could stop by for rest and a home-cooked meal. At the rear of the home was the private quarters. According to reports at the time, both Elvira and John Senior spoke with heavy German accents and knew little English. They were both thought to be around the age of 60, with Elvira being a few years younger, maybe 55. Mar Bender was so unfriendly that her neighbors dubbed her the She-Devil. Meanwhile, John Jr., thought to be around 25, spoke English fluently with a German accent that wasn't quite so pronounced. He was also known to laugh aimlessly, leading many of the locals to believe that he was a, quote, half-wit. Kate appeared to be the most popular of the family. Aged around 23, she had very little accent and was described as attractive and well-spoken. She was also a self-proclaimed healer and psychic who handed out flyers to advertise her powers and her ability to cure illness. Kate was known to conduct seances, give lectures on spiritualism, and advocate free love. She was essentially the inn's main attraction, and many men traveled there to see her and ask for her services. When travelers and passerbys began to go missing shortly after the arrival of the Benders, nobody really took much notice. After all, the area was known to be dangerous. It was filled with natural dangers and bandits, and run-ins with the nearby Native American tribes were commonplace. But in 1873, rumors and stories about missing people had become so rampant that many began to avoid the trail. Innocent men accused of being responsible for the disappearances were captured and released by vigilantes, and some of them were later run out of the county. Then, in the winter of 1872, a man named George Lancor and his infant daughter left Independence, Kansas to travel to Iowa, but he was never seen or heard from again. A neighbor whom he was close to, Dr. William Henry York, grew concerned when George didn't contact him by the spring of 1873, so he went to look for him. He reached Fort Scott before deciding to turn back and return home. However, he never reached Independence. Fortunately for Dr. York, he had two well-placed brothers who knew of his travel plans and were immediately alarmed by the fact he hadn't returned home. Colonel Alexander York set up a search party of around 50 men, and they set out to look for the missing doctor. On March 28th, the men arrived at the Bender family's inn. The Colonel explained the situation to them and asked if they'd seen Dr. York. The family told him that while he had stopped in one night for a meal, they hadn't seen him since. They suggested the possibility that the doctor had run into trouble with the Native Americans while leaving town. Colonel York agreed that this was a possibility and had dinner with the family before leaving. A few weeks later, on April 3rd, the Colonel returned to the inn with armed men. He confronted the Benders about the rumor he'd heard that a woman had fled the inn after being threatened with knives by Elvira. John Jr. and Kate denied these claims, while Elvira acted like she didn't understand what the Colonel was saying. However, York continued to push the matter, and suddenly, Marbender snapped, claiming that the woman was a witch who'd cursed her coffee. She then ordered the men to leave. The men were shocked, 
Clearly, the elderly woman had a better grasp of the English language than she had ever let on. Before the men left, Kate told Colonel York to return alone, and she would use her abilities to help him locate his brother. While his men believed that the Benders and their neighbors were responsible for the doctor's vanishing, the Colonel believed they did not have enough evidence to do anything about it yet. Tensions among Osage and its surrounding communities grew as the township was solely blamed for the strange disappearances that were occurring in the area. As a result, the township organized a town meeting that was attended by 75 locals, including Colonel York and the two Bender men. The group decided that the best course of action would be to conduct searches of the homes between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek. However, due to bad weather, there was a delay in getting started. After a few days passed, a local passing by the inn noticed that the animals were roaming around and the building was oddly quiet. It was then realized that the Bender family had fled the area. Volunteer searchers arrived on the scene to find that most of the family's clothing, food, and other possessions were gone. Upon entering the building, a foul odor was immediately noted. Following the scent, the men came to a trap door in the floor, which had been nailed shut. When they opened it, they found clotted blood on the stone floor of the cellar. Although several men took sledgehammers to the ground, they were unable to find any bodies, although they noted the blood had soaked into the earth beneath. The group then headed out to the vegetable garden and orchard, where they began probing the soil with metal rods. By the end of the night, they had discovered about nine suspected grave sites and had recovered the body of Dr. York. After this, the men called it a night and returned in the morning, which is when they found eight bodies in seven of the nine suspected graves, as well as several different body parts. All but one of the victims had their head bashed in and their throat slit, and some had been indecently mutilated, to use the words of one man at the time. One of the victims was a young girl with no visible fatal injuries, leading to the theory that she had either been strangled or buried alive. Some of the victims were wealthy, but many had nothing of value. This caused some speculation that the family killed simply for the thrill of it, rather than for the intentions of getting rich quick. The Bender's method of execution is believed to go something like this. Unsuspecting guests at the inn were invited to sit near the canvas cloth divider on a chair that was on top of the trap door. They were often placed facing away from the cloth so they wouldn't see anything when one of the Bender men approached from behind the curtain and bashed in the victim's skull with a hammer. Afterwards, one of the Bender women is thought to have cut the victim's throat to make sure they were dead. The victim would then be pushed into the cellar and later stripped of their possessions before being buried in the orchard. Interestingly, several almost victims of the family came forward to say they had been verbally abused and physically threatened for refusing to sit near the canvas divider. At least a dozen bullet holes were found in the roof and sides of the cabin too, suggesting that several victims had attempted to fight back. Word of the discoveries spread quickly. Around 3,000 people from all across the country came to see the gravesite and the cabin for themselves. Souvenir hunters practically dismantled the building, brick by brick. State officials offered a combined reward of $3,000 for the capture of the entire Bender family, which is the equivalent to around $60,000 today. 
12 men in the county were arrested and charged as accessories for helping the family to dispose of stolen goods. Detectives did their best to hunt down the benders. They followed wagon tracks to the family's carts along with their starved horses. It was located just outside the city limits of Thayer, 12 miles north of the inn. In Thayer, it was confirmed that the family had bought rail tickets for Humboldt in Allen County, Kansas. Reportedly, John Jr. and Kate departed from the train at Chanute and got another service to Red River County near Denison, Texas. From here, the pair traveled to an outlaw colony that was thought to border the region between Texas and New Mexico. However, authorities declined to pursue the siblings any further, as it was known that lawmen who entered the territory often never returned. But according to one detective who reportedly followed the trail, John Jr. had passed away from internal bleeding. Meanwhile, the older benders continued to Kansas City, where it's believed they bought tickets for St. Louis, Missouri. Over the years, many vigilante groups claimed to have caught and killed the Bender family. Some say they were each executed by gunshots while Kate was burned alive. Others said they were lynched, while one group claimed they were killed in a gunfight. However, no evidence has ever been brought forward to prove any of these claims, and nobody ever claimed the $3,000 reward. The search for the family continued on and off for around 50 years. They are thought to have been responsible for the murders of over 20 people. There has been much speculation about the real identities of the family. Not one member had the surname Bender, and only two of them were actually thought to be related. Some believe that John Sr. was a man named John Flickinger, who reportedly took his own life at Lake Michigan in 1884. That same year, a man resembling Pa Bender was arrested in Montana for a murder carried out in Idaho, where the victim was killed by a blow to the head using a hammer. However, before he could be identified by Cherry Vale authorities, the man hacked off his own foot so that he could escape his shackles and swiftly bled to death. By the time investigators arrived, the body couldn't be identified due to decomposition. Elvira's real name is believed to be Almira Hill Mark, although it is frequently misspelled as Make, M-E-I-K. She allegedly had numerous husbands, and according to rumor, she killed several of them. She also had 12 children, one of whom is thought to have been Kate Bender, whose real name was reportedly Eliza Griffith. John Jr.'s real name was John Gebert, and he is actually thought to have been Kate's husband, not her brother. In 1889, a woman named Almira and her daughter, Sarah Elizabeth, were arrested for larceny in Michigan. They were accused of being Elvira and Kate, but their identity was never confirmed. However, there was not enough evidence to prove the women's identities, and they were ultimately released. Their fate is unclear. In fact, the fates of all four members is unclear, and there is no evidence to prove what happens to them. Much of the information surrounding the family's identities is speculation, with little evidence to back up their alleged true names. No documentation has ever been found which would reveal each of their names or their connections to one another. The cabin where the murders occurred is no longer standing, but the land where it once stood was up for sale in 2020. 
Interestingly, the owners at the time, who'd possessed the land since the 1950s, had never carried out any excavations, leading some to believe that there are even more victims there, lingering beneath the earth. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. You can also support us on Patreon for early access to our documentaries and Too Close to Home special episodes. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.